Welcome to A Writer in Italy, the podcast. I am your host, Michelle Johnston, and this is a little share in the world of travel, books, art, and lifestyle. I live in Australia, yet have long had an attraction to the Mediterranean countries for as long as I can remember. This inspiration has fueled my creative life and given me incredible joy over the years as an artist and a writer. And that is why I have created these shares on journeys that have been made, books that I have loved, and cooking adventures inspired by wonderful food writers. You can find all show notes at michellejohnston.life and follow me on Instagram at a writer in Italy where you can find all of the meanderings and indeed the lure of Italy as the ultimate muse. Thank you for joining me. I love having you here for the journey of Muse Italia. Welcome back to the podcast. Here is my take on the life and the art of Peggy Guggenheim. I have been fascinated with her life for about the last four years and have read and reread many books about her life and time in Venice. I waited until I visited the gallery in Venice before I dared to even talk about her life. So here is my take on the world of Peggy Guggenheim. And if you feel like being a patron for this podcast and you would like to donate and show your encouragement, visit my website, michellejohnston.life and the donate button. And otherwise, I hope you really enjoy this episode as much as I did creating it. Love and Art, The Life of Peggy Guggenheim, Part 1. Soon after arriving in Venice in 1946, Peggy was at the Café Angelo, next to the iconic Rialto Bridge. In Malena di Blasi's words, quote, every pilgrim's point of reference, end of quote. It was no surprise Peggy found herself there, at the Ponto de Rialto, in between the glitzy and the gaudy, but in the place of myth, magic and Venetian grandeur. For Peggy, Venice was symbolic. Her private life was colourful, chaotic and full of beauty and high drama. She was 49 years old. Peggy called Venice her miracle city. The first visits with her first husband and later each time she returned, she felt her spirit soar. In Venice, even if she was alone, she would feel the layers of beauty and art so intoxicating she would be happy just walking and walking and stopping to eat wherever she found herself. Peggy wrote, I have never been in a city that gave me the same sense of freedom. End of quote. Inside the restaurant, Peggy inquired where she could find some modern artistic circles. The ones she was so used to like her Paris days and her New York life. Peggy was told to go to the other Angelo restaurant. There she found a colourful restaurant full of patrons' art on the walls. The custom at the time was that any artist who put art on the walls ate for free. Before she knew it, she met two Venetian men, Verova and San Tommaso, both artists who were up on contemporary art, and even knew of her uncle Solomon's big white garage 
back in New York, also known as the Guggenheim Museum and Foundation. The meeting was serendipitous. Peggy Guggenheim would describe in her autobiography, Out of This Century, Confessions of an Art Addict, quote, It was through San Tommaso that I was invited to show my entire collection at the 24th Biennale of Venice, end of quote. The contemporary international art show that started in 1895 was back for the first time after the demanding years of World War II. The Greek pavilion was not in use in the year of 1948, vacant due to Greece's civil war. Peggy, being in the right place at the right time, was invited to show her private collection by the Secretary General of the Biennale, Rodolfo Paluccini. Here was a sweet lifeline for Peggy, to be reunited with her favourite place in the world and on the verge of causing a sensation with her modern art, showing many for the first time the schools of cubism, futurism, surrealism and abstract expressionism. Under the one roof at Europe's oldest art biennale, La Biennale di Venezia. But first, let's take a dive into Peggy's life and lay the foundation for what led her to spend the next 30 years in Venice, living on the Grand Canal in the Palazzo Venere dei Leoni. I think it is important to know who she was and how art became her magnum opus, how art would turn her into one of the 20th century's great art patrons, with a legacy that continues to influence and educate and evolve to this day in the year of 2023. Born Marguerite Peggy Guggenheim, 26th of August, 1898. Peggy's mother hailed from the wealthy Seligman banking family and her father, the Guggenheim family, a mining magnate, both families of the wealthy Jewish community and living in the Upper East Side of New York. Peggy had two sisters, one she adored and one she despised, and lived a luxurious bourgeois lifestyle on Fifth Avenue, with servants and nannies. Peggy was not all that impressed with the bourgeois excess she found herself privy to and found it all quite boring. Even though the family were nouveau riche, they still remained on the outside of high society. The Jewish immigrant families were not exactly accepted into the elite New York society of the time, where an air of anti-Semitism clouded their worlds. Writer Judith Mackerel said, the Jewish families in New York, quote, still carried the taint of the European ghetto, end of quote. Peggy found it all quite insular and troubling to her as a young woman. Too sensitive and lacking in friendship and play, her eldest sister Benita, her only real friend, educated at home until she was about 15 and cared for by hired help, her world was isolated and quite lonely from the beginning. Peggy describes her mother as fairly neglectful and once said in an interview her mother, quote, bored her. She was known to be quite eccentric, or perhaps that is a nice way of saying she was completely neurotic. Peggy's mother, Florette, suffered terribly from her husband, Benjamin Guggenheim's many affairs with women. He was quite the ladies' man and often spent long amounts of time away from the family home in New York. Overseas with works and dabbling in money-making schemes, Peggy adored her father, 
but understood from an early age the effect his behaviour was having on her mother. So much so it created tremendous anxiety for Peggy as a child. Peggy was 13 when her father Benjamin died on the Titanic on its grand maiden voyage to New York. He was returning home with one of his many mistresses on the ship for her sister's birthday. The sudden and shocking loss of her father led her to suffer a horrible depression in her teenage years. Soon it was evident the young family's wealth was in tatters since Benjamin was not so clever with his investments. The wealthy Guggenheim uncles who Peggy described as, quote, madly rich, and some Seligman money would help the widow and her three daughters out of trouble. Although they did have to downsize their living arrangements and course correct, to say the least. Peggy, you could say, was not dazzling rich like her grandparents. Although certainly over time, at 21, and after her mother's death, there were great inheritances that would give her the freedom and, to an extent, influence where she lived and how she went about her life. Although the troubles with money, the burden of it, the anxieties of relationship would all play out in Peggy's life over the coming years, certainly the tensions were real to her and would create a complex web around a woman who really needed a therapist or two along the way. She had great complexes about many things. An ugly duckling, the black sheep of the family, after the loss of the Guggenheim fortune thanks to her father, created a great complex of inferiority that would continue to cycle in and out of her relationships with men and women. Yet truly, she was a fascinating creature, and no doubt, once she got her confidence moving, she was able to make some decisions and connections that would certainly change her life and the art world on the whole. Growing up, books were important to Peggy, and especially so when she landed a small job in a bookstore that introduced her to art, literature, and the avant-garde. Peggy was 21. This new territory excited her and became a point of focus for her interest over the following years. These new art circles were the first inkling of joy for Peggy. Even her first patronage to an art paper gave her a sense that this money she loved and loathed could be of use for the artists and the people she found so interesting. Peggy loved to learn, having great determination when it came to reading, and would engage tutors to assist her studies. One of her tutors told Peggy, as a woman of wealth, you have a responsibility to be philanthropic. This idea was new to her and sparkled a little. Peggy said later, quote, Lucille was the catalyst, end of quote. Lessons in the Italian language and books by Bernard Berenson on the Italian Renaissance by the American art historian who lived in Tuscany at Itati, now the Harvard Institute for Renaissance Studies, were fascinating and enduring. In fact, reading about the Renaissance art and Venice was something of a North Star from the very beginning for a young, impressionable Peggy. Modernism, or contemporary art, was far from her mind. Literature and books on art were wonderful. They provided Peggy with a foundation for her to develop her ideas and thoughts on art, As time went on, she was exceptionally fortunate with the bohemian circles that she socialised, so far away from her parents' gilded cage on the Upper East Side. In Paris, in French Bohemia, in the cafes and the brasseries she frequented, would lead her to meet some of the greats, 
men like Marcel Duchamp and her husband Lawrence Fayle, a painter and writer, and later the great surrealist painter Max Ernst. The two men she would marry and live two tumultuous marriages with in the coming years. The first years in Paris were pivotal, transforming who she was and to a degree where she was going. She was most happy, reveling in the playful bohemian lifestyle, where the artists and the writers and poets frequented. Paris was the place where drinking, partying and sharing great conversation was the norm, even if she did end up picking up the tab for the drinks each night. It was still riotous fun for a young woman figuring out who she was in the world. Peggy had two children with Lawrence Vale, a son, Michael Cedric Senbad, and a daughter, Peggyne Jezebel Margaret. Her relationship with her first husband was volatile and difficult, resulting in a separation and much later a divorce. Peggy was often the brunt of his frustration and abuse. Alcohol fueled many a row between the two. In time, they would separate and would eventually remain friends. In the divorce settlement, Lawrence would go on to keep Sinbad and Peggy in turn Peggyne. Something Peggy describes as a painful process of divorce and a lack of women's rights at the time. Her relationship at the time with a great love, John Holmes, also played a role in her decision. At the time, she couldn't have a lover and her children according to the laws. Sometimes I wonder if her doubts about mothering played a bigger role considering she could have likely afforded a ballsier lawyer, but who really knows? Holmes was a great love and a man of intellectual capacity and a writer who too struggled with alcohol. He died at 36 after a minor surgery, much to Peggy's horror. The truth is Peggy's life with its monetary comforts was not simple. There were many true disasters in her life. She said to her biographer, Jacqueline Weld, quote, I've had a lot of disappointments in life. I've had a very sad life, I think. End of quote. Once her children were older and set up in boarding school, Peggy realised she needed a project or a vocation. For a while, she couldn't decide to go into book publishing or to have an art gallery. Literature was her true love, but for some reason she had the idea it would be too expensive to go into publishing, something she laughed at years later. In 1938, Peggy opened Guggenheim Jun in London, a gallery for contemporary art. She was fortunate to have a friend like Marcel Duchamp to play a pivotal role in the decisions based on acquisition and education. Guggenheim Jun introduced the public to many a legendary surrealist artist, Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, Jean Up, Jean Cocteau, Yves Tanguay. A smashing exhibition by the artist Jean Cocteau also paved the way for a hit of notoriety. The surrealists and the avant-garde were exhibited regularly, as were a bunch of other important artists at the time. Pablo Picasso, Henry Moore, Magritte Kandinsky, Miro, Matisse, and so on. Peggy bought pieces from the Cubist period too, pieces by Braque and Picasso that were not yet in flavour. The gallery lasted for just over a year and was quite the step ahead, since there were no contemporary art spaces in London at the time. But the real problem was that no one was buying this contemporary art, 
and her money was drying up fast. Peggy realised a museum might be a better idea, like her uncle Solomon back in New York. Peggy was never afraid to ask for advice from her friends and mentors. Samuel Beckett, a friend and lover, would suggest it was important for her to patronise young and upcoming artists. In the meantime, she enlisted an art advisor and authority on modern art to help her focus her energies on the right pieces and the right artists to acquire. And back to Paris, Peggy went. Although looming around the next corner was the bad smell of war. Although Peggy pushed through the drama and really didn't seem too phased by the social upheaval, she went on collecting and buying art that would set her up with one of the most impressive collections of art in the world. With Herbert Reed's list, Peggy went on to acquire Brock, Picasso, Bala, Picabia, Gliss, Dali, Miro, Ernst, Clay, Giacometti and Brancusi. The Brancusi bird in space was one of her very favourite pieces. In Peggy's words, quote, on the day that Hitler invaded Norway, I walked into Lajar's studio and bought a wonderful painting, end of quote. The piece was Men in the City by Fernand Leisure. Peggy was a woman possessed by acquiring art. She would later describe it as an addiction of sorts, feeling the passion and fire and the purpose, excitement of what she could acquire was full of adrenaline and a true inner joy, the kind of joy she had rarely felt in her tumultuous life. Many friends thought she lacked sensitivity as most people were trying to get the hell out of Paris but she just kept on going, visiting studios and artists. And perhaps it was a bit of luck for some of them to have some ready cash in their pockets just before things turned terribly sour. Getting out of Paris was indeed looming and Peggy having Jewish heritage was certainly tempting fate. Although she seemed to have an air of naivety about the trouble she could be in, but eventually worked out a plan to get the art back to American soil. Lejar suggested she ask the Louvre to protect the works, but they were not interested, something Peggy would feel an air of superiority about much later in her life as an art collector. While in the south of France, to cut a long story short, more luck was on her side when a friend of hers organised the work to be wrapped and shipped by a carrier over the Atlantic in a cargo shipment of kitchen goods. Truly, I see it as an extraordinary thing, and the timing insane considering Hitler was on the rampage, and if you know anything about art history, Hitler considered the avant-garde and contemporary art to be evil. Hitler coined the term degenerate art and rallied to have his men on the warpath to banish the artwork and occasionally the artists themselves. Many went into hiding, particularly any in Germany that were on his list. Hitler even gave an exhibition of 650 artworks of degenerate art, so the public knew exactly what to despise, with pieces by Mondrian, Kandinsky, Picasso, and many more. Hundreds were highlighted on the wall. Words that could describe Peggy Guggenheim. Provocative, eccentric, narcissistic, rebellious, needy, irreverent, forgiving, obsessive, courageous, loving, savvy, entrepreneurial, and indeed visionary. Back in New York with her family and her extended family members on the tail, she opened the gallery out of this century and attracted more of the modern art circles to her door with great European art and artists on offer in Manhattan. Peggy and her sidekick, 
how would Putzel continue to collect art to display on the walls? Peggy, as many of you know, is most famous for discovering Jackson Pollock. I believe she wasn't all that interested with his work straight away. But it was the artist, Pierre Mondrian, who commented on the power of his work and the potential of the artist. And so she gave it a little more thought and made the decision to back him, giving a monthly stipend to Pollock, who was trying to stay focused on art and not alcohol, out at Long Island, New York. She even invested in a house for them to live in, Pollock and his wife, Lee Krasner. Although Peggy Guggenheim was no fool, the contract for Pollock stated any work that did not sell, she owned and could relinquish at the end of the contract. Alongside Pollock came Robert Motherwell, Clifford Still, Mark Rothko, and many more great artists were introduced to the public at the time in her gallery. And yes, they were mostly men. New York was the place to be over the next few years. The international vanguard was all on, yet no doubt, things were still tricky. The Second World War was still in crisis, and indeed a reality, and not many were buying art. Peggy would go on to have great exhibits for new artists, and soon had one of the first exhibitions for women artists, 31 women artists, in fact including her daughter Pagin, who was growing into a talented artist and stunning pieces by Frida Kahlo, Leonora Carrington, Dorothea Tanning and many, many more to the list. What a coup it must have been for the 31 women at the time, considering women were still making their way to the front row as artists. The art world in New York, circa 1943, many would say was a man's world. No doubt a gallery might not bother with the word women today. But then it was a shift in how things could present. Even today, when you consider the recent success of British writer Katie Hessel and her book, The Story of Art Without Men, Going Gangbusters, and the Instagram account, The Great Women Artists, has over 300,000 followers which tells us women still need a little attention and celebration. Peggy's sexual appetite was quite well known in the circles she frequented. She fell in and out of love with men all of the time and had many a conquest, just like the men in her life. Even if women were not encouraged by society around this time for this kind of behaviour, she felt strongly if men can be free to play, why couldn't she? Still, love was important to her, and around this time was the second marriage to Max Ernst. Ernst, an exile in America, was amongst a bunch of friends and artists that Peggy helped get out of Europe with the invasion of Hitler and his armies. Max Ernst was a regal bird, and people flocked from all places to be in his company. The attention they both received in York, once settled, was electric more partying and celebrating after escaping Europe. It must have been an incredible feeling, considering the drama they left behind. Although things did eventually sour with Max, since he was still in love with the artist, Leonora Carrington, who had just arrived in America. And later, Max connected with artist Dorothea Tanning, who he instantly fell for when introduced. Perhaps just a marriage of convenience, and Peggy clocked another rejection in the form of a love interest. Peggy moved on, sleeping with whomever she pleased, some say looking for her absent father, 
and many of the men she was fond of. When she published her book, Out of This Century, on her life and art, she barely changed the names of the men she had been with. Many were outraged by her lack of concealment or sensitivity, considering a good bunch were married at the time. The book caused an uproar, and many of her family's relations went out of their way to buy copies at bookstores. The less books on the shelves, the better. People seem to have a love or hate relationship with the work, much like Peggy herself. But Peggy loved the attention and the notoriety she gleaned from the book release. The whole thing about her sex life didn't seem to throw her. She needed men, and she needed art. It was as simple as that. Thinking about all of this, it must have been quite exciting for Peggy to write this book. It is interesting to me that the two things she most gravitated toward, books and art, found their way into her arms. She certainly was on the right track all along. Post-war New York was a hive of activity and the art gallery in Manhattan was a sensation. It was a radical change in talent where the era of modernism was born, a time when abstract expressionism art took the lead. It wasn't about Paris now. It was all happening in New York, and Peggy was at the heart of it, creating change, celebrating art, and championing artists. Many have documented her life, once coined the mistress of modernism. But she was bigger than that. Peggy was swept up in the love affair, and even if she wasn't exactly full of great emotional intelligence, she was full of determination, ambition, grit. In 1947, Peggy closed her gallery on West 57th Street. After five years in New York, it was time for a change. Peggy said near the end of her life, quote, I always wanted to come back to Europe. I never meant to stay in America. End of quote. Returning to the place she described as her dream city seemed a possibility. And that is how she found herself at the age of 49, staring at the teal and sparkly waters of the Grand Canal in Venice and wondering where the artist might be. There is no doubt her biggest triumph was brewing. The next 30 years were not going to be boring. Perhaps she was making up for that childhood restlessness. Peggy was building a legacy. She was a woman to watch and a great pioneer. Nothing would be the same in the Dorsoduro at the Palazzo Venere di Leone, the 18th century palace she would buy and live in and exhibit her collection. And little did they know in post-war Venice what a splash she would make.